Hosea chapter 10. As we continue through this book, we're more than halfway through. Well, a lot more than halfway through. But as we normally do when we start a new chapter, we kind of take it easy and take it slow so we can kind of get a, uh, a good um, <clears throat> established foundation for, for the chapter itself. And then it will flow into the next chapter as well. What's interesting about these chapters that we've been looking at from about chapter 7 on <clears throat> is God's indictment against the northern kingdom of Israel because of their, their sin, their rebellion against God, uh, complete, uh, total rebellion as a, as a people who moved away from really uh, worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem and establishing two places of worship in the north, one in Bethel in the south of the north, <laughs> and one in the north-north, which is uh, Dan. And in both places, they worshiped uh, graven images, in particular a, a, a calf, a golden calf. And so immediately, they were already in trouble <coughs> with the Lord because of that. <clears throat> Yet he sent his prophets to get them to repent, to turn from the way that they had gone. And uh, he sent the prophet Hosea or Hosea, and became he became an object lesson for them about his uh, about themselves. You know, he, as we know from the very beginning, he was he was told to marry a prostitute so that he could show the people that they had, had uh, begun to marry a harlot instead of remain married to the Lord. So we've gone through all of that, and uh, God has continued his indictment against Israel. But each time we see that there's something added or else it's an, an expanded understanding. It's not just repeating over and over the same thing, which is, is uh, the blessing of the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us in that way that, you know, though it's similar, it's, it's not the same. You know, he's giving us an expanded view of, of uh, which also tells us a lot about his, his view of judgment, you know. He wants people to be very clear about the judgment, that it's not just him, you know, going off the deep end, which God would never do. It's always very rational, it's always very right, it's always based on righteousness, it's always based on the fact that he has given them every opportunity to do what is right, and when they choose not to do that, then he brings them to that place of, of judgment, but not until he's already given them opportunity upon opportunity to turn back to him. So he continues to focus on Israel as a... Uh, as it says here in verse 1, Israel is an empty vine. And he's using that agricultural uh, uh, example again, as, as he already has in the previous uh, couple of chapters. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. Their heart is divided, and now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars, he shall spoil their images. For now they shall say, we have no king, because we feared not the Lord. What then should a king do to us? And some translations may say, what then should a king do for us? So, <clears throat> as I said, God's indictment of the northern kingdom of Israel continues, and it would normally seem as if there is much repetition in these last few chapters, but it is necessary repetition building on variation and building on depth. In other words, he hits very similar things, but then he goes deeper and deeper into it because he wants them to be clear that these are the things that, that he's judging them for. So this chapter specifically begins with a comparison of Israel to an apparently spreading and luxurious vine. The word empty there, though it, though it does mean vain, 
to be empty or vain or, or, or worthless in the sense that it's, it, it doesn't have uh, what it was made to, uh, to produce, which of course is the, uh, is the fruit. Nonetheless, it's a word that's also descriptive of this, this spreading vine. And you know, if a vine spreads, that means there's some life to it. There's, there's something that's, that's coming forth. There's something that people will see, see and they'll say, wow, well, it, it's certainly giving forth a lot of leaves, giving a lot of vine out there. Uh, and, and, but that's the whole thing. It, it, they find out then that, that it's not a fruitful vine at all. It's just vines. In other words, the vine failed to bring forth any good fruit. Now, there might have been some fruit, but as we'll learn from Isaiah chapter 5, that fruit was wild grapes, not good for consumption, in other words. So we find in both Old and New Testaments a principle that God has purposed for his people to bring forth fruit. It is one of the purposes of everyone that is a, a believer both those who were of, of, of Israel, those who were of, of the Israelites, those who were of, of Judah, uh, of the whole nation of Israel, or those that are believers in Jesus Christ. All of us fall under that same principle of, needing, of, of, of uh, being purposed to bring forth fruit. So I want you to consider, if you will, Isaiah 5. Turn, turn there, Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, because it's important to see the, uh, the way that the scriptures complement each other in the way that God is speaking to Israel. He says, now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Well, that uh, verse in itself tells us how much he loves his people. It tells us that the things that he does for them, he does because he loves them. The things that he provides for them, he does because he loves them. And he says, my well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. In other words, it brought grapes, but it didn't bring the kind of grapes that that kind of vine was supposed to produce. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? God was the one that planted the vineyard. God was the one that planted Israel and, and Judah in the land. So he says, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked at it, it should bring forth grapes brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. But what he's saying is, the way he planted, the way he wanted it to come forth with fruit, did not come forth because, in, in effect, the vine chose to bring forth its own kind of fruit. Notice what he says, I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. He looked for judgment in the sense that he was looking for justice. He was looking for the people to be doing what God had called them to do. He was looking for righteousness because that is how that vine was to, was, was to be planted and, how, and, and the reason why it was planted the way it was. But instead, there was oppression and there was a cry. Now consider that for a moment because that's something that we've already seen in, 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 the, in the life of the northern kingdom of Israel. Instead of being the kind of people that were obedient to the Lord, they were... They were robbing from each other. They were killing each other. They were doing all kinds of, all manners of things to one another, but they weren't doing the Lord's will. And eventually, the Lord had to bring them to judgment. So a fruitless vineyard, then, is of no value to anyone. 
And see, you can take a, a great looking vine, but if it has wild grapes and grapes that are of no value, grapes that can do nothing, produce no juice that is of any good uh, taste or flavor, the same with the, uh, the taste or flavor of the, of the, uh, of the grapes themselves, uh, it's, it's of no value. You can't use it. And the nation of Israel was giving a, uh, given a calling to be a light to the world for their God and Messiah. That is what their purpose was. They were to be a light to the world. That their God, that their king, was in fact the king of the universe. He was in fact the creator of the heavens and the earth. He was in fact the one who needed to be worshipped and him alone to be worshipped. But their fruit was dead on the vine. Now, now take just for example, just a very quick example, that when they were obedient to the Lord and they were in fear of the Lord in the right way, in the reverent way, and they trusted in the Lord and they feared the Lord and they followed the Lord and they obeyed the Lord, what did the nations around them do? They feared Israel because they said their God is with them. But the minute that they began to want to be like the people around them, what, did they, what, what happened then? God withdrew himself. And they got the, the, they got the confidence to want to, you know, come against them. And eventually, of course, God used them to judge his people, to waken them. And from time to time, you know, even in the book of Judges, you saw that, that vicious cycle. You know, they would disobey the Lord and then they would repent before the Lord. Then the Lord would bless them. And then they'd be in a time of blessing for a little while and then they would fall away. And then that, that cycle just went on and on and on with the Judges. By then, we already knew they weren't really trusting in God, their king. They weren't letting him be king. Therefore, they were disobedient to their king. So, their fruit then was dead on the vine. And now, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came out to observe and examine his baptism, John the baptizer said this, now coming toward the time of Jesus. Pharisees and Sadducees. The ones who said that they were the followers of the law. They came out to see John baptizing. And this is what John said to them in Matthew 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers. He calls them snakes. O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who's warned you? To flee from the coming wrath. Notice what he says to them. Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. Which means fit. Fruits that are fit for repentance. Bring forth fruit. There's that principle. We've seen it in the Old Testament. We're seeing it now in the New Testament. Bring forth therefore fruit fit for repentance. What the Lord was saying to Israel. What the Lord was saying to Judah. What the Lord was saying then through John the Baptist to the Pharisees and the Sadducees was, hey, let's see, the, let's see your fruit. Let's see what kind of fruit you have. People can have fruit that look good. We know this from the scriptures, don't we? You can have fruit that looks good, but if you take a bite into it and the, the inside is rotten, you know you have rotten fruit. But you don't know you have rotten fruit most of the time. Sometimes you do. I mean, sometimes, you know, a piece of fruit will look pretty rotten. But, but sometimes you'll see something that looks pretty good, but once you cut it open or whatever, you take a bite of that, you know, it doesn't taste so good. Let's see the fruit that you have. What kind of fruit are we producing for the Lord? Or what kind of fruit are we producing for ourselves? Because that's the rotten fruit when you think about it. Remember the words of Jesus <clears throat> to his disciples on the road to Gethsemane. Uh, to, uh, Gethsemane. Yeah. Gethsemane. He said in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now remember, the cross is just around the corner. And he said, I am the true vine. I am the vine. And my father is the husband, and my father is the, the farmer. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Now remember, it, it will have some kind of fruit. What he's talking about is fruit that is of any value. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, 
he taketh away. That's the pruning process. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So remember, bearing fruit, bearing more fruit. And as we go on, we're going to learn that we have to bear much fruit. Verse 3, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Notice that. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me. In other words, he, he that is dwelling in me, that is connected to me, that is in my vine. The same bringeth forth much fruit. What is that telling us about the kind of fruit that we bear? It's telling us that if we don't, if we are not connected to Jesus Christ, if we are not in the vine, well, we may bear fruit, or we may bear no fruit, but we're going to bear nothing of value. And he says, for without me. Well, he says, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. In effect, God was saying that to, to Israel. Without me, you can do nothing. As you'll see in just a moment. Verse 6. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and, and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Back when we studied this, I mentioned those men gathering is, is key to understanding that this is not uh, what, what, what the Lord is saying here is that, that you know, you're not cut off and thrown into hell. That's, that's what, what we learned about that phrase, men gather them. Because when you consider, you know, those that are, going to spend eternity away from God. Um, that's a different story. You know, then we're dealing with angels, we're dealing with uh, the Lord casting them into a fire. Uh, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you, may, uh, that you bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Notice that. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. The fruit that we bear for the Lord is what glorifies God. God is glorified by the fruit that we bear. And that's, that should be our desire, to bear fruit to the glory of God. And so shall you be my disciples. So shall you be my followers. Because my followers are the ones that are going to be submitted to me, obedient to me, and fruitful to me. So we see then that principle of bearing fruit throughout all of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And so Israel, in their failure to bring forth fruit unto righteousness, failed in the purposes that the Lord had ordained and established for them as a nation. And I, want, I don't want you to miss what I was saying here in that statement Israel in their failure to bring forth fruit unto righteousness failed in the purposes that the Lord had ordained for them and established for them as a nation. That is what they should have been doing, bringing forth fruit in righteousness. The result being that Israel was soon to be destroyed by their enemies, the Assyrians. We've already covered that pretty much in, in the last three chapters. And so we... we, uh, we read the Lord's complaint a little more in depth now when we come to verse 10, verse, uh, to verse 1 in, in Hosea 10, where it says Israel is an empty vine. Again, we already defined empty. The, the word itself not only means uh, vain, but it also means a show of, of luxury, but at the same time empty. Uh, a spreading vine that looks alive, but doesn't have any life to bear. He says he bringeth forth fruit unto himself. That's, the, that's, that's one of the keys that we want to look at here in this one verse. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. We're going to touch upon that in just a moment. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. And we'll certainly touch upon that. There's those, those are three separate phrases. So the phrase, he bringeth forth fruit unto himself. 
Now, is, it has to be understood because I've, I've just been saying they're, they're not bringing forth any good fruit at all uh, unto the Lord. Uh, Isaiah points out that they're bringing forth wild grapes. The phrase is not reflective of what Jesus meant in John 15, that we are to bear much fruit to the glory of God. But remember that the people were prospering. Remember this. Israel was prospering. They were getting blessed to a certain extent, to a certain degree. They were being blessed monetarily, uh, materially, uh, financially, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, they, uh, there was great wealth that was flowing throughout the nation, allowing many to build larger homes, accumulating more possessions, and even living in luxury. That's implied back in chapter 8 in verse 14 where it says, For Israel has forgotten his maker and buildeth temples, and Judah hath multiplied fenced cities. But I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. So the implication is here that, uh, you know, they were prospering so much that they were building temples. I mean, that means that the people themselves were building their own personal temples within their own homes. They were uh, living in fenced cities. You ever live in a gated community? That's kind of what it sounds like. They're living in a gated community where they can, you know, expand to their heart's content. But God said, I'll send a fire upon his cities, which eventually would happen because of the Assyrians, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. Not just one palace. Who lived in a palace during those, uh, the days of, of the kings? Well, the king did, usually, and some of the princes, but uh, all the royalty. But here it, it just speaks very generally of palaces, so it's like everybody wanted a palace. And history teaches us that during periods of enormous prosperity, People tend to become extremely selfish and self-centered. However, it also shows that people are quite willing to give generously to whatever religion they think has caused and will sustain their prosperity. So, you hear about these prosperity preachers. And, and, they're, and, and I'll tell you what, they're not humble at all. They'll, they'll, go, they'll get in your face and say, God made me rich and he wants you to be rich. Well, God made that person rich because he, you know, he pulled it out of the people that you know, come after and listen to him and believe him. But they get it into their minds now, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to trust the Lord and, and, and there's some prosperity going on. But are they really giving it unto the Lord if a person is, is teaching a false gospel and they're giving him all the money? Is that, is, is, are, they, are they giving unto the Lord? They think they are, but they're not. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying about that? If a person is preaching a false gospel, but he's drawing them to you know, give and give and give, and they're working hard to do it, and they're thinking, well, I am being prosperous, so evidently this person is, is the one that you know we're going to give it to and they use the terms like well this is where this is your storehouse so this is where we're going to put you know into the storehouse that that's what's what's been happening for, for a lot of people so they're giving in in, in where, where they think uh, the cause and the uh, and the sustenance for their prosperity uh, is, is is centered but there's one major dilemma one major dilemma. The people were giving their wealth back in Hosea's time. They were giving their wealth to gods and idols that were no more than products of their own imaginations. They were giving to idols. And what does the scripture say about idols? And images. They have eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear. They have mouths but they cannot speak. And, and so out comes this, this sense of, of, uh, of futile uh, work, you know. Because they were already commanded. You go back to the law. They were already commanded not to make graven images. They were commanded to worship one God and him only were they to serve. And they were not to make any carved images whatsoever, whether it be of any God or of the God that they believe is the one that they met out in the wilderness. 
and while they gave the Lord, they, you know, while they, they gave to the Lord, the true and living God, lip service. They gave to the Lord lip service. They gave their money to build more altars to their false gods and to make their idols and sacred pillars more beautiful and ornate. And don't forget that these altars and pillars were used in their, their perverse sexually religious orgies. So all the things that were built, all the things that were made, everything itself was, was sexually oriented. That was the whole process of these, uh, of these uh, pagan religions of the time. Makes you wonder when they were saying, we want, we want to be like the other nations. <laughs> we, want, we want a king like the other nations have a king. Eventually, they would intermingle, you know, and what would then happen? They would accept their gods, and it got so bad that even Solomon, the son of David, in all of the wives and concubines that he took into his life, he began to worship their gods. They'll never think it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy thing to just say, well, you know, I... I I know this unbeliever, but I think, you know, he'll come to the Lord if I, I, I spend time with him, I'll talk to him, you know, whatever. And I'm talking about, you know, male and, and a female, you know, having a, you know, building up a relationship, a friendship or whatever. You have to remember what the scripture says. Scriptures, the scripture is very clear. It says, you know, that don't, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because we, you know, when we think we're strong, we're not. That's, that's, the whole, that's the whole idea here. Because we're still in flesh. So God, God knows our makeup. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And, and that's the makeup of, of some people that they think, oh yeah, well, that's no problem. We'll, we'll get through. It's the exception, not the rule. The rule was, don't have anything to do with these false gods. Don't have anything to do with the people who have false gods. Isaiah 29, verse 13, is a passage that has to do with lip service. And I think it's important for us to come to this understanding because not only do we, will we hear the quote from Isaiah 29, verse 13, but also Jesus using that in speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. But Isaiah 29, verse 13 says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me. That's lip service. But have removed their heart far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. So you see then what, what the root of, of lip service is. When, whenever, we under, whenever we come to an understanding of what, what people are doing with their mouth. Because people can praise God with their mouth. But the mouth has to be connected to the heart. And if the heart and the mouth are not connected, and by the way, connect the mind too. Because it's, it's, it's rational thought that's involved in our relationship and fellowship with God. Not just, not just, uh, you know, just the, the emotion. It's, it's our understanding of all of these things. God wants us to be people of understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. The fear of the Lord is to worship the Lord. Let's never forget that. So what the Lord is saying here is where the, he says, for as much as the people draw near me with their mouth. Don't you think the Lord is going to know who's coming with, their, with just their mouth and not with their heart? He already knows that. And it wasn't just a few people, it was a whole nation of people doing it. And this is the reason why Isaiah and Jeremiah and, all the, and uh, Ezekiel and Daniel and all of the minor prophets, all of them are, are called in, in these two nations of uh, Israel and Judah to go out and say, listen, you need to get your heart right with God. It doesn't matter how much you say with your mouth, it's, what, it's the heart that God understands and God, know, and God knows. He says, but if you've removed your heart far from me and their fear toward me 
worship is taught by the precept of men. And I think that that's one of the major problems in worship today in the church is that we're teaching a, we're teaching a kind of worship that excludes God's word and in most cases exclude God as being the very and only focus of our worship. And that the name of Christ be also high and lifted up. But what does man do? Man draws God down and has a low view of God and a higher view of man. And I'll say it again because I said it, uh, I believe this past weekend that, uh, or maybe even last week. I'm getting old. I forget when I say things. I, but, but, I, but, but you know what's happening in the church today is that the church overall is overestimating the body and underestimating the head. We cannot underestimate the head who is Jesus Christ. And overestimate the body as if it's the body that matters more. It's the head that matters. Because without the head, we have no life. Without the head, we have no wisdom. Without the head, we have no knowledge. And we go around just going in one direction or another. That's why God's leadership is so important here. But if we fear toward, you know, if, if we teach people to, to worship God in a way that is not reverent, and respectful and fearful. Even in the New Testament, people say, well, where is that in the New Testament? It's, it's all over, but I mean, there's one little verse at the end of one of the chapters in the book of Hebrews. It says, God is a consuming fire. Now, if you read everything before that, you realize it's leading up to that thought. God is a consuming fire, therefore, we ought to worship him in spirit and in truth. We ought to worship him the right way. So we get to Jesus then using this particular scripture in Isaiah. Speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, he says uh, in Matthew 15, verses 7 and, uh, through 9, he says, You hypocrites, well did Esaias, uh, or Isaiah pre uh, prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me. There it is. In vain. In vanity. In, worth, in worthlessness. Because that's what va vanity is. Worthlessness. To be vain is to think only of self and not about anybody else. And biblically speaking, vanity is something that makes man God and not God himself. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines and commandments of men. So now consider the last phrase of verse 1. According to the goodness of his land, because we've already, we, we did touch the first two. Bringing forth fruit unto himself, according to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altar. So he's, you know, the multitude of his fruit, you know, instead of, you know, giving the glory to God, he gives the glory to the idols and so on. But here, this phrase, according to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. The Lord had given them a good land. The Lord had given them a good land. He obviously blessed them with their prosperity, right? But what they ended up doing with their prosperity was making or building better, improved images. More, they were making their worship centers new and improved. They were polishing up the old idols and making new ones or repairing the new ones, making them glitter as gold. They were doing everything they could, you know, to heighten their worship experience in, in the uh, sexual kind of way that, uh, the, that they were already worshiping. And so because of this, the Lord pronounced two judgments on the people. Look at verses 2 and 3. Their heart is divided, and now shall they be found faulty. Here's the first judgment. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. 
And then the second, for now they shall say we have no king because we feared not the Lord. What then should a king do to us? So first, their false gods and their worship sites would be destroyed, utterly demolished. God gave them time to destroy their own, their own worship sites. God gave them time to get rid of them. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> In fact, when you look at the southern kingdom of Judah... You remember now that in the southern kingdom of Judah, they had good kings and bad kings. They had good kings and bad kings. The good kings, one of the reasons why they were good was because they were the ones who tore down the Asherahs or the, the uh, high places where they had the trees that were carved into all kinds of weird images, you know, that were used in, in their, in their, in their uh, uh, rituals and, and, and ceremonies that were based around the uh, fertility rites. They would do that. Some of them did most, uh, most of what they should have done. Others didn't do enough. Some were good. The bad ones were the ones that were <laughs> allowing that worship to go on. So their false gods and their worship sites would be destroyed, utterly demolished, and the people were given the opportunity to do it. They didn't do it. Secondly, their leaders would be removed. And that's what that second part of, of uh, verse 3, it says, for, for now they shall say we have no king because we feared not the Lord. What then should a king uh, do to us or for us, as the case may be? But uh, their leaders would be removed. That's, that's what this is saying. And their government would collapse. And when a government collapses, what do you have to look forward to? There's some idiot... Uh, Hollywood actor that said some words this week in a, I don't know where he was at, he was in some thing that he got behind the, you know, a lectern and he started saying, well, if we, we do this right, but, you know, we need to, we need to work hard at, at overthrowing the government of the United States. He, those are the words he used, the government of the United States. Of course, he's saying he's trying to overthrow the, you know, the president administration of President Trump. Uh, but the, well, those are the words he used, overthrow the government of the United States. He said, well, we can do it, you know, the right way, you know, <laughs> overthrow the government. That's, those were his words. I and mean, when, you, when you hear that, I mean, what is he thinking? What is he thinking? What, what are people thinking when they hear uh, people like that who, you know, should spend their time just being what they are, which is dumb actors? What, is it, what are they saying? Well, we have, a, we have a, a system. It's called voting, you know. This is what we do. And, uh, yeah, we have freedom of speech, but, you know, we also have to be careful not to, you know, overthrow that. But some people are trying to do that, too. It, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. The point I'm trying to make is that when we, we see what we see in our own country where there's such a divide today, and we've talked about the weakness of, of, of America, the weakness of this country in the time that we see happening that's coming with, with the uh, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 war uh, and the uh, Psalm 83 war that all centers around Israel and, and what's being set up today with Turkey, uh, Russia, and uh, Iran. All of these things are, are quite clear in, in the scriptures that, that it's it's soon to happen. And, and America is not going to have the strength to support Israel like it had in the past. And it's giving us, I'm just bringing that up as, as a point that this is what happens when we begin to implode you know, from within. Things crash in internally. Uh, most of the major empires of the world, when they, when they were taken out, were taken out because they, they imploded. Even the Roman Empire, to some extent. But many others. And there's a reason. The reason is made clear in verse 2. Their heart is divided. 
their heart is divided. I, I honestly, and I just, just very quickly, another point in this, this whole uh, political debate. There, there is no rational debate anymore. You cannot find a rational debate anywhere. Uh, I really try to find it, but it, it's not there. Because eventually it comes down to the fact that, you know, people are going to hold uh, a certain position about the president or they're going to hold a certain position about Congress or, or about the Senate. And, and, but it's, it, there's no, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, working across the aisle. Uh, that hasn't happened. It, 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 there have been some legislation that, but it's, it's few and far between when it happens. The point is, their heart is divided. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. The people had divided hearts. Divided hearts. That, that's certainly a problem that so many people have, even in the church. Think for a moment about a statement that Jesus made to his listeners in Matthew 6 what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 24, Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, it's interesting that Jesus would say that we cannot serve two masters, and then he would say at the end of that statement, you cannot serve God and mammon. The Greek word is Mamonas, a, a, it's a personification of riches, a personification of riches, wealth, as it were. You cannot serve God and riches. You know, many of us wrestle with this. Some, some constantly wrestle with this kind of divided heart, as it were, where some will say that part of them wants to serve the Lord and the other part wants to live after the flesh. Or part of them wants to be righteous while a part of them wants to indulge in the things of the flesh. That's called a divided heart. In his epistle to the church, James writes that the, that, that kind of, of a divisive heart and, and attitude is a sign of instability. A divided heart is a sign of instability. Look at, listen to what James says in James chapter 1 verses 5 to 8. He begins with a great statement. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That give it to all men liberally, freely. And abradeth not, which means he, he, he gives without reproach and he gives without criticism. God is not going to criticize you if you ask him for wisdom. God is not going to come to you and say, listen, you know, the, the other day you were doing some stupid things. And, and as far as I'm concerned... You know, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pay attention to, to to you. You know, you get yourself straightened out before I give you any wisdom. The fact of the matter is, when we do stupid things, that's when we need wisdom. Do you, do you understand that point? Boy, I've really said the word stupid a few times tonight, haven't I? I don't normally do that. But God does not come at us with 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 reproach or criticism if we ask of God wisdom and it shall be given him there there's the answer to that if you ask God for wisdom he gives it to you but let him ask in faith now there there's a there's a condition we have to ask believing let him ask in faith nothing wavering a good a, a good example of wavering was Pontius Pilate what we saw in him going back and forth between Jesus and the, and, the, and, the, and the people and Jesus and the people back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. What, what, did that, what did that show you? He was wavering. But we need to ask the Lord in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with a wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. And that's when he says in verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable. In all his ways. In all his ways, a double-minded man is unstable. A man who is divided in his mind is also divided in his heart. 
You know, the Lord said to his people through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, verse 13. He said, you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. We cannot be divided in our heart when it comes to the Lord. We'll find him, he says. You shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I think some people think that they can, you know, have what all they need is, is just a little bit of God and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. No. It's all of him or none of him. When it comes right down to it, that's what he's saying. That's what Jesus was saying in, in, in John chapter 6. After he had fed the 5,000 and their family, and, and, and those 5,000 men and their family. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Not saying literally. That's not what he was talking about. I mean, he didn't want us to develop some kind of a doctrine on, on you know, tr transubstantiation of, 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 you know, all of a sudden, you know, we can declare a, a, a little wafer as, as the, the real body and blood of Jesus. That's not, that's not what he meant. Because if he had meant that back in, in those days as a, as a Jewish person, he, I mean, he would have been blasphemous. But you, people needed to listen to what he was saying. And he needed to be taken in completely. Everything that he did, well, he had to receive completely. It wasn't just part of Jesus on the cross. It was all of Jesus on the cross. You shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The psalmist King David prayed this prayer in Psalm 86, verse 11. He said, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Now notice this last phrase in verse 11. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Unite my heart. Did David not already know that his heart could wander in so many different directions if he doesn't, have, if he doesn't say, unite my heart, Lord, to fear thy name? He's dealing with worship. He's saying, unite my heart that I might serve you. Unite my heart that I might worship you, that I might praise you. Unite my heart. I want one single heart that loves you, serves you, and will follow you. And will die for you. Every day. How are we able to worship the Lord with a divided heart? Obviously not very well. What David was praying was this, Lord give me singleness of heart. A heart that is really after you. A heart that goes after God. Pursues God. Just as David himself, once again, in, in Psalm 63 now, verses 1 through 8 says, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. That is how we are to, to, to consider our pursuit of God. We thirst for him. We long for him. To see his power and glory, as he says, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness, your mercies, are better than life. Thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches because thou hast been my help. Therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. And notice this statement in verse 8. My soul falleth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. My soul follows hard. That's how we should pursue the Lord. 
with everything that is within us. With everything that we have. But because the heart of the people was divided there. And notice the heart. It was interesting. It's, it's a singular term. Their heart is divided. A nation of people whose God is the Lord should be one nation under God. Fear the Lord. Worship the Lord with one heart. But because the heart of the people was divided, there would be no doubt that the Assyrians were coming, their cities were to be destroyed, their altars were going to be taken away, and the calf that had become the symbol of, for their national worship in the northern kingdom of Israel was, was going to be carried away as a prize by the king of Assyria. That was going to happen. And eventually it did. And all because they did not reverence in worship the one true and living God, nor his Messiah, Jesus Christ. We cannot drive this point home more than is possible. It must be driven plainly and clearly that the Lord planted Israel in good soil to produce good fruit, to bring him glory and honor and praise. Instead, they brought forth wild grapes or fruit that was of no use. I think the world is like destroying itself outside tonight, isn't it? Doesn't it sound like that? I think, I think it's some kind of a Fireworks thing, we hope and pray. You know, unless it's the Lord coming. Hey, that's all right. We can go home right now. The Lord planted Israel in good soil to produce good fruit to bring him honor and glory. But they brought forth wild grapes and fruit that was of no use. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy, listen carefully to this progression here. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. In other words, he's made us alive with Christ. By grace, you are saved. And has raised us up together. And follow the pattern. Follow the progression. He's raised us up together, made us sit in, together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where our position is now as believers. Even though we're still here and we're waiting for the return of Christ to take us home. He's made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And then this great and famous passage. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Notice, we are his workmanship created. Oh, by the way, workmanship is poema. Poema in the Greek, from which we get the word poem. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The Lord has created us for good works. Just as he created Israel to do those works that would give honor and glory to the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The Lord has created us for good works, works that he has prepared for us, the scriptures tell us. And what he wants us to do is to walk by faith. And as we take those steps of faith, we will bring glory to God. Again, that is what Israel should have been doing. But Paul alluded to the fact that good works don't save us. He made it clear we are saved by grace through faith and that not even of ourselves. So good works, good works are just the fruit. Good works are just the fruit that is born out of that relationship and fellowship with the Lord displaying the reality that we are truly saved. The works don't save us. The works come out of our salvation. It is truly a salvation not by works, but is a salvation that does work. All the glory then should go to the one who loved us 
and gave himself for us. There will be no fruit without him. We are his workmanship. Israel was God's workmanship. And for a time, they believed it. And they believed him. And they feared him. And they worshipped him. And every time they did, God blessed them. Every time. So when it comes to the misuse of the provision that the Lord gives us or provides for us, I want you to remember the words of John the Apostle in his first letter to the church. When he writes in 1 John 3, verses 14 through 19, he says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. In other words, we know that we are saved because we are now different than we were before. We now love one another. We love one another because Jesus said that we are to love one another because the world will know then when we do that we are his disciples. So he says, we know that he have passed from death unto life because we love the brother. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now where is he going with this? Notice what he says. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We need to die to ourselves in laying down our lives for one another. But whoso hath this world's good, now notice what he's saying, whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Now compare that to what was happening in, in Hosea's time. The people should have been loving one another and serving one another and supporting one another and, su and supplying for one another. When those who had need had need, they would give, and nobody had need if everybody gave the right way. Instead, they had become prosperous, they had become selfish, and then they began to build bigger barns and they began to build bigger, uh, bigger temples and bigger places and bigger idols and... and and uh, the people they began to rob from, their own people. And they killed their own people. We've already gone through that in, in, in the earlier parts of this book. So he says, Whoever, Whoso has this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels, how, does, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, and neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now, folks, that's, that's a word for each and every one of us individually. Be careful when you start going up to somebody else and requiring them to follow what the word says without them doing it themselves. In other words, judging others out of legalism. No, the thing about it is, is we, we should just do this because that's the heart of Jesus. That's the love of Christ in us for others. Let me close with a couple of other passages real quickly here. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19, so that we get it very clear in our minds about riches. Paul said, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. That they not be out there boasting that they're, they're rich, boasting that they, uh, they have everything boasting of, you know, millions and millions of dollars of airplanes and all kinds of other things. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Isn't that a beautiful statement? He gives us richly all things to enjoy. And a lot of those don't even count, it doesn't even cost money. <laughs> so some of those things don't even cost anything. But there's enjoyments that are far beyond the things that we can buy or purchase with, with filthy lucre. That they do good. That they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Lastly, Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, 
the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. There's some fruit. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. Now the word communicate there is the word koinonia in the Greek. And if you know the word koinonia, you know it means to share. So do good and share. And don't forget that. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So if this lesson was about anything, it was about us. Remembering what God has called us to be as believers in Jesus Christ. He's called us to be humble. He's called us to be generous. He's called us to be fruitful. He's given us a purpose, not just for ourselves, but to enhance and to edify the body of Christ, to enhance the believers, to give encouragement where encouragement is needed, and to continue to be used of the Lord until the Lord comes.